Inside of a TV truck is a board with what seems like an endless amount of rainbow-colored buttons that are controlled by the technical director. In this episode, I talk with one of the world's best TDs on what he does, how he shaped the games you watch, and what you should keep in mind when you tune in to Super Bowl 54. Sports in the Making is ready to roll in 3, 2, 1. Thank you so much for listening to Sports in the Making, where we find out about people who work in the sports and broadcast industry, find out what they do and how sports comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona. This is episode number three and was recorded in November of 2019. It is being released prior to Super Bowl 54. Today, my guest is a gentleman who has worked on some very high-profile events in his television career and has been a significant part of most every sports fan's experience. He's the one that punches the buttons for the entire world to see. He's worked on events such as NASCAR, the Super Bowl, BCS Championship Games, and NBC's Sunday Night Football. We talk about his entry into the business, what a technical director does on Sunday Night Football. By the way, it's one of the most difficult positions in all of television. And we'll also talk about one of the most challenging events he's ever been a part of. This is a conversation with my friend and colleague, John Howard. Mr. John Howard, thank you for joining me. Hey, John. Thanks for having me, man. Now, how would you describe what it is a technical director does? So on every live broadcast, the the front bench, the the flight deck, as I call it, because I I like to equate a live broadcast to flying an airplane or a spaceship. The front bench consists of three individuals. You have the producer. I, I know you know that role very well. Uh, the producer is ultimately in charge of the entirety of the broadcast from, from stem to stern. The director, uh, who's generally sitting right in the middle of the front bench, who uh, is the moment-by-moment person taking the shots, taking the camera shots, and going where the announcers are leading and, and, and likewise. But then you have the technical director, and the technical director is the person who actually performs the function uh, on a large video production switcher uh, of the director's commands. So when a director says, ready camera one, take camera one, the technical director in a live broadcast physically performs that function on the video switcher, inserting the graphics and making all of the visual transitions that you see during the live uh, broadcast. So I, I liken it to, uh, I'm a huge uh, sci-fi fan. I basically uh, give the analogy that you know, if you imagine our control room as being the bridge of the Starship I'm Enterprise. I'm so glad you said that director, because that's what I was thinking. <laughs> the director is Captain Kirk. Don't tell the producer that. Uh, the director is generally the captain. And when, when he says or she says warp speed, I'm, uh, I'm Mr. Sulu who, uh, who pushes the button to make it happen. It, it all happens very, very fast. But, but ultimately, the technical director is the, is the last sort of uh, gatekeeper, the last person to, to make sure that signal's good to go home to, in our case, 25 million viewers on Sunday night. Yeah. Uh, because by the, when I put it there, it's, it's going. It's going home to, to America. So that's, in a nutshell, what a technical director does in the live scenario. But there's, there's so much more behind it in terms of the engineering and the planning and the plotting and just making sure that, you know, every effect, every element that you see uh, on Sunday night, especially, is is quality controlled. It's QC'd, as we say, before it gets to me, and certainly before it goes home. Yeah. So that's an interesting part. I think that a lot of people may not know is you know the technical director is is one of the most important roles on the whole broadcast because, like you said, you're the last gatekeeper before it hits air. So what are some of the responsibilities that you have leading up to a Sunday night football game? You know, honestly, um, I'll I'll kind of walk through my week for you uh, just to give you a little sense. Generally speaking, uh, during the the main part of the the football season, I'll travel to our site on Thursday. Now, uh, I'll I'll start by saying that we are on site. You know, a lot of people don't realize that anymore, that that we actually have, you know, uh, between six and eight tractor trailers that will park underneath the stadium uh, at, we're actually at the venue. So I'll travel to the city on Thursday. Friday for us is an engineering day. So on Fridays, what I'll do is start by uh, looking at the camera map and the camera chart for that particular week's game. For example, certain stadiums will require that we put certain cameras in certain places. If we have, uh, let's say it's, it's camera four. Camera four is the high end zone camera for us, which is the one that generally will cover field goals and extra points. 
Some stadiums that would be on the left of the press box and in other stadiums, it's on the right of the press box. So where camera four falls basically dictates where camera 15 goes, which is a flash camera, for example. So things like that are what I'm looking at on Friday, trying to determine you know, where those cameras go, adjusting uh, the monitor wall for the director and the producer based on our complement for that week. And frankly, going through all of my equipment, making sure that everything survives the trip. Because remember, these things are, are computers, essentially, and they're riding in tractor trailers, 53-foot expando tractor trailers down the same interstates that you and I travel. Right. And some interstates are more forgiving than others. And things happen in transit. You know, uh, computer cards can get knocked out of alignment and, and cables can come undone if you're bouncing down the road at 65 miles an hour. So Friday for me generally is the engineering day to make sure that everything survived the trip and to basically make sure that anything that didn't survive the trip gets uh, fixed or replaced. And then Saturday is really our detail day. That's the day that we go through every single element that's going to be in the show. If it's a promo, let's say I've got a, a promo for The Tonight Show, which is generally uh, one of the first promos that we run on Sunday night. want to make sure that it is the correct promo, that the audio is correct through our, our A1, our, audio, our lead audio mixer. And uh, basically just dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and making sure that all the spelling is correct on any element that I'm running, things like that. I spend about two hours with our associate director uh, in the afternoon on Saturday, and we walk through everything, sometimes frame by frame, but it has to absolutely be perfect before it, it runs on Sunday night. And that's, that's generally what our Saturday is about, is making sure that all of the cameras, that everybody gets a tally light. You know, when a camera is live, they have a red tally light that the operator sees in their viewfinder to make sure that they know, hey, you're on TV. And we'll, we'll go through that with every single camera. We'll do a slow motion test in the evening under the lights of the stadium on Saturday night to make sure that, you know, all of our XMOs, all of our high speed cameras look as good as they can possibly look under the lighting situation. Because mm -hmm. every lighting in every stadium is different. And Saturday is a very busy day for us to make absolutely sure that we are putting our best images out there and, and that everything is finely tuned. When you're doing this, you're you're responsible for all the technical that leaves the truck, yes? Correct, correct. Every every visual resource we have from every camera to every graphics machine, we have six different graphics machines. And, you know, I want to make sure that they're all, from an engineering standpoint, working exactly right, that they're all in what we call in time. Because if you, if you have a graphics machine that's not in time, the graphics going to look different than it's than it should look. Mm -hmm. So, you know, looking at all the technical specs of every single piece of equipment, I, I say it this way, the, the video switcher that I use has 192 inputs. That means it can accept up to 192 different sources. Wow. And every one of those sources is examined thoroughly on Friday and Saturday before we hit the air on Sunday. All right. So you get to Sunday then. What's your routine on Sunday? Because that's obviously game day. Sure. So Sundays for us are a, a wonderful routine. It is like clockwork. Every Sunday for us is almost exactly the same, regardless of what time zone we're in. I'll wake up at the same time. I will be at the stadium at the same time, which is generally about 11.15 for an 11.30 call Eastern time. Uh, the first thing we do at noon Eastern is check in with 30 Rock and with uh, NBC Stanford. And we'll do our very first uh, transmission check-in. We have six different paths going six different places. And so, uh, and, and that's just the fiber transmission. We have other muxes and other signals that are going other places as well. But the primary transmission uh, is six paths for us. And we want to make sure that what we're sending them is exactly what they're receiving. So we'll start with things like color bars. Everybody's seen color bars, you know, in their lives. The, the, the wonderful rainbow spectrum that, that just screams television. Well, they have a very specific purpose. Uh, we can look at those color bars on a scope, and I, we can tell you if it's exactly as it should be or if there's something wrong between the source and the destination. So that's, that's one of the things that we use. We, we look at tone. We look at lip sync because, you, you know, one of the most annoying things in the world is to see someone talking but not have their lips lining up with what you're hearing. So part of uh, this transmission check is to make sure that all of the audio and video are in absolute alignment to within about four milliseconds, which is the, the threshold of detection 
by the human eye. Yeah. So when that's done, right around the time we finish that, the producer and the director and, and most of the production team will arrive on site. And at about two o'clock Eastern, we'll do an hour and a half long rehearsal. And it's basically everything that the associate director and I did the day before, uh, plus going through actual show elements in rehearsal. We'll, re we'll rehearse the open without Alan Chris at this point, but we'll rehearse the steps of the open. We'll rehearse halftime. We'll rehearse the post game. And then we'll go through and we'll rehearse scenarios that could come into play. Uh, we'll have our replay group. We'll, we'll queue up different uh, looks and we'll go through every single replay machine for for an audio test, making sure that, that everything is, is functioning normally. And then ultimately, we end up rehearsing a good bit of the show in real time as it's going to happen. So nobody is seeing anything for the first time when we hit the air at 8, 13, 20 on a, on a Sunday night. Like you said, you cover every scenario. Are there obviously scenarios that you can't cover? And then how do you, I guess, mentally plan for those? You know, I, I heard the analogy once that it's like a football coach. You know, football coach, offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators can plan for what they can plan. You know, and obviously our production team is watching the tape. They, they meet with the teams in the, in the days leading up to the game. So they have an idea of what is in the bag of tricks uh, with a lot of these teams in terms of plays they may call or scenarios that may come up based on their history or based on, based on something that may have come up during a meeting. So we will go through scenarios to be able to react to those situations. Yeah. You know, we, we have certain elements that we rehearse every single week that may hit the air once every two seasons. But when it unfolds, when the situation happens, we're prepared to, uh, to cover it. I'll give you an example. In the Super Bowl in Indianapolis, there was a, a call of 12 men on the field. And we have a telestration device in our replay room that allows uh, an operator back there to essentially put little numbers on each of the players. So when that situation occurs, we affect to that particular machine and all the operator has to do is add, think the 12th person, and then we affect off of it. And you've told the story in three seconds, yeah. but that's something that we rehearse every single week, even though it, it happens, you know, maybe be, I, I don't even know what the percentage of the time is, but, we go through those types of scenarios so that when a scenario happens, we're in a position to cover it and do it in, in the best visual way we can. Yeah. And, and being at the top of the game, you know, NFL, Sunday Night Football, the ratings are outstanding. You have to have attention to detail on those kinds of broadcasts. But I don't know if people really realize that level of attention to detail. Our producer, Fred Goodelli is, uh, in my opinion, and with no disrespect or no slight to anyone I've ever worked with, he is the most thorough, detail-oriented producer with whom I have ever worked. He is amazing. The things that he sees, the things that he remembers, and nothing is going to get by him. And that's a wonderful thing for, for folks like me who are just as detail-oriented and, and you know, he believes in giving us the equipment and the tools that we need to get the job done, but the expectation is absolute perfection. And that is my expectation, and I think that of everyone else on the show. But it all comes down to him. That is his show from, from start to finish. Yeah. And he sets that bar, and everyone else plays in the, in the orchestra, you know. And uh, it, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of because you do know that that is the expectation. But it is it is challenging, you know. The more we uh, the more we try to to produce into a show, you know, we're we're constantly looking for ways to improve. We're constantly looking for ways to evolve. So you know, none of us ever is able to sit back and and rest on on anything, and and that's good. I'm I'm not that type of human. I I, I prefer <laughs> to constantly be in motion and constantly be moving things forward. And it is quite the challenge, but we have the people and the positions and the equipment on this show to fulfill that expectation. And I think we, we do it pretty well. That kind of sparked my interest on how you got started in this industry because you're at the top level of your game and you're obviously doing it well. So how did you get your start in this industry? And then how did you work your way up? Sure. Well, it's all by complete accident, which I think uh, I hear that is, a lot. It's quite a, yeah, I, I was going to say, I have a few friends and colleagues who, who are all happy accidents as well in this industry. 
I started, uh, I went to a small liberal arts school in South Carolina, about an hour northwest of Columbia, which is where I live. Uh, and it's called Newberry College. You've probably never heard of it. A lot of folks haven't. But at the time, and this was in the early 1990s, they had a wonderful mass communications program. Dr. Clem Chow was the chair of the program at the time, and he was from Hong Kong. And I'll never forget him because uh, the first time we met, which was at a, uh, an open house that they had, as I, I, was a, I think I was a high school junior at the time. I hadn't made my decision because, look, I'm a lifelong Gamecock. I was committed to the University of South Carolina until I met Dr. Chow. And Dr. Chow swayed me because he said one thing to me when we met the first time. And that was, I'm going to teach you not necessarily how to do, but how to think. And the first question he posed to me was to basically imagine it's 1983 and that I am the PR director for Tylenol after that whole scare and after people had died. How do I get people to come back to Tylenol? And that stayed with me. Uh, it, it, it just it resonated with me. I'm mm. like, well, let's see. I would probably put my family on camera and say something along the lines of, we trust Tylenol, why don't you? Which I think ultimately is what Tylenol did. Uh, so he and I became fast friends and frankly, he would call me, uh, even as a high school junior and senior, he would call me every Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock on the dot. He never relented. And so I was committed to him and to that school. But at the time I was a DJ. I all through my high school career and even further back in the middle school, I was the DJ at the local skating rink in, you know, Irmo, South Carolina, which, frankly, the skating rink was all we had in Irmo, <laughs> South Carolina for entertainment. So I thought I was going to pursue the career in radio because I was blessed with my dad's wonderful pipes. Thank you, Father. <laughs> uh, so I thought, I thought radio was it. And this, this mass comm class had a wonderful radio program already underway. They were building the television studio. They were building the control room. And that was all great. I, w I always had an affinity for, for television, but I thought radio was going to be my path hmm. until I got there. And it was my first semester of my uh, freshman introductory class. And the instructor, Marshall Matty is his name. And I still have coffee with Mr. Matty just about every Tuesday. Hi, Marshall, if you're listening to this. <laughs> it's all your fault. This is all your fault because he showed a film and it was an actual canister film of a behind-the-scenes look at the Emmy Awards. And this was probably from the late 70s or early 80s. But it was the first time I got a chance, Don, to see a director, a producer, and a technical director in the preparation mode in the, the days and weeks before. And then ultimately, it followed them behind the scenes the night of the broadcast. And I was floored. Mm. I walked out of that class going, I have no idea how but I'm going to do that. And from that moment on, I was committed. I knew I, I'm so very fortunate because look, I, and I tell people this all the time, I have no business being here. I'm from rural South Carolina. The road I grew up on was dirt and didn't even have a name until I was in high school. Wow. My late mother was a telephone operator for Southern Bell and then ultimately AT&T. My father just retired several years ago as a horseshoe farrier. He was a horseshoer. Uh, a farrier. I, I truly have no business being in this industry. So, you know, uh, seeing that film and having that experience at Newberry started me on my path. And then ultimately, I went from working at a radio station in Columbia, which was the big station at the time. I got an offer to go to work for the ABC affiliate here, WOLO. Uh, Dave Aiken offered me a job as a basically a minimum wage part-time camera operator in the studio. And I jumped at it. So I would go to school at Newberry College during the day, and I would drive 45 minutes every evening to work wow. and work until 11.30 or midnight and then drive back home. I lived about halfway in between, so it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but it was a lot for a senior in college. But that experience uh, led me to where I am today. I, I went from working on the floor and to, to basically directing and TDing in those days, uh, our newscasts within about two months. Uh, and then subsequently uh, was recruited over to the number one station in town, which was the WIS, uh, the NBC affiliate WIS uh, here in Columbia. And I was there for, for 10 solid years as uh, their senior director and later as the production manager. But it was at WIS that I started freelancing on the weekends. So first with like uh, Jefferson Pilot Sports, which in those days was a, a local group out of Charlotte. 
that uh, was owned by uh, the Lincoln Financial Group at the time, but they would cover some of the SEC, some of the ACC games before you know ESPN sort of uh, got all of those contracts. Uh, it was a great experience. Then from there to ESPN, and then ultimately with ABC Sports, I did two seasons of ABC College Football while I was still working full time as a manager at this NBC affiliate in Columbia, South Carolina. It was a crazy few years, but that experience is what got me ultimately a gig with Fox Sports that allowed me to say goodbye to the full-time job. Because, you know, look, for freelancers, that's a hard move to make. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, technically, I am a freelancer. I have a contract with NBC for Sunday Night Football, but I have other contracts throughout the year that, that aren't football-related. And that's a hard, hard decision to make, even in your late 20s or early 30s. Gosh, do I want to make this jump. Yeah. Uh, but thanks to Artie Kempner and, and those at Fox Sports, I was able to, and I jumped right into the BCS coverage when Fox had that. My first full remote as a, as a freelancer was the hook and lateral game, the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl of 2000, gosh, that was Seven. 2007. Yeah. yeah. The Boise State game. One of the first acts I did as a freelance remote technical director was to turn that field at the University of Phoenix Stadium blue for Boise State. So <laughs> I was able to kind of create that magic trick. And that, nice. that was in to the executives at Fox. And so I enjoyed a, a very nice run with Fox Sports on both their NFL coverage, their BCS coverage, and their NASCAR coverage. Uh, in fact, uh, this this spring, I'll be joining them again for NASCAR. Uh, it'll be my Gosh, 14th season with them on NASCAR, and that's that's a wonderful uh, springtime gig because, number one, I'm a fan. I mean, you, you don't grow up in South Carolina without uh, enjoying at least respecting the sport of NASCAR. Yeah, that, I, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah, with Darling, Darlington's an hour from, from me, and I, I grew up going to the track when I was younger. But uh, So that's my fall experience. But, you know, it all culminates. It all comes together, and if you have goals, and if you set goals, and if you're aware enough I think you see the things that sort of happen around you and so, sort of the guideposts in life that sort of direct you to where you need to be. And, and, and I can't imagine a, a better experience than, than working on Sunday Night Football. It is truly the culmination of, of, a, of my career, and I'm so fortunate to be a part of that group. Yeah, well, before I get into your career, because I, I do want to touch on some of the things that you've done, what was it like the first time you, you were in the TD chair for, for a big game? I, I, I'll tell you my first game, the very first event I ever did as a technical director. Again, I was working full time at the television station here in Columbia. But the very first event I ever was the technical director for was the first season of the then Greenville Growl Hockey League. We had the, uh, the East Coast Hockey League, the ECHL. And this was in, gosh, the late 90s. But it was one of the very first games that they played. Uh, with the Greenville Ground. They were a brand new expansion team to the ECHL. And I was hired to be the technical director. And it was uh, a very small TV truck. I'd never worked in a truck in my life at this point. And so, <laughs> so you I had to set up it up and, and everything. I had to, correct. Yeah, I had to set it up. I had to figure out what I needed to figure out. <laughs> because, you know, there isn't really a, and, and there, to this day there really isn't, but there isn't really an ascension program to be a technical director. You know, mm. you can be a utility, you can be an audio assistant and then hang around enough and, and maybe mix a segment as an audio operator or what have you. You can learn camera. You can learn pretty much any other position. Technical director isn't really a position you can sort of learn on the job. You have to sort of sink or swim. And I thought I sank this day. I showed up. I, I hadn't worked on the switcher before. It was a Grass Valley 300 for those listening and, and who know what I mean, which is uh, an early iteration of the video production switcher. It was very popular at the time, but I'd never set one up. I'd never assigned, you know, the functions that I needed to assign to make this show happen. But I sat there, I had six hours to do it, and we did it. We, we set the, the game up, and of course, I worked through lunch, so I hadn't eaten all day. I had the worst headache of my life. It was so stressful. I know those days. Yeah, but then we get into the third period of this hockey game, and the glass breaks. This is a brand new arena, so they, there was a broken glass uh, on the ice, and they didn't have the glass to replace it or at least they had to make modifications to an existing glass to replace it. And this was taking a long time. Well, in those days, we were purely relying on satellite time to broadcast these events. Oh, and the no. director. Oh, yeah. So the director, you see where I'm going here? I do. The director who was 
Also, the producer, Stas Hall, one of the greatest combo director producers I've ever worked with, superhuman being, he realizes that we're going to run out of satellite time, that they didn't book enough satellite time. So he's on the comms trying to get a hold of the satellite guy, who I guess at this point had taken a smoke break. He, he was nowhere to be found. So once action resumed, Stas, frustrated, looks over to me and says, take over. And he goes flying out of the truck. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> take camera one. Because, you know, in hockey, you can get away with pretty much everything on camera one. <laughs> Uh, I think I may have done a replay uh, during the stoppage. So, you know, we, we actually were still able to continue the story. But I don't remember being more petrified in my professional life than when he looked at me in that moment, my very first gig, and said, take over. Yeah. Uh, I, I think to this day, that's going to be the words on my tombstone. Because <laughs> 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 that, that definitely knocked a few years off my life then. Yeah. But, uh you know, I, I think, and even to this day, I will I will close my, as we're counting down to the open of Sunday Night Football, I mentioned the routine of Sundays. I will to this day, you know, when, when the, the associate director hits 10, 9 in the countdown, I will close my eyes for those five seconds up until about five or four. And I'll silently say the, uh, the Alan Shepard prayer, which is, dear Lord, please don't let me screw this up. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and just say a word of thanks to the universe for getting me here. You know, I, I am I am so grateful, but that's part of my routine every Sunday yeah. night is, is to, you know, give myself that moment of a deep breath before we get going. Because once the light goes on, you're full throttle for the next three and a half or four hours. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's almost like being in a trance in some ways when you're when you're in that mode. I've spoken with directors and producers, and you, you probably know the trance that I'm speaking of because, you know, your mind is operating at at a level that isn't normal you know it's it's a it's a wonderful combination of listening and reacting and anticipating and it's just it's the ultimate in human functionality uh on that front bench as i know you know and uh then you come out of it and it's it's almost like you've been in a, in a trance it's like what what just happened you know yeah we all we all say things in the heat of the moment we all do things in the heat of the moment but you know, you can never take that stuff personally because, you know, again, we're all in trance. We're all in, in the moment, you know, and we'll we'll shake hands after and we'll apologize after. It's like, oh, I said that. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to snap. <laughs> but it is it is uh, it, it is a different mindset, to be sure. Well, and I think that that countdown moment, all the preparation that you've put into this game and that countdown, like you said, that time from 10, 9, you're trying to clear your mind of all the clutter you don't need so that you can actually focus when time comes to, to do things. Because as you know, live events are not predictable. I mean, you can guide everything, but once it gets there, something happens or it goes haywire. Now you have to figure out how to, how to adjust. You're exactly right. And it's so interesting, you know, when you recognize that, that need, that you do need to clear your mind and that you do need to have a moment of just absolute blank. And I've seen others do the same thing in different ways. For example, I've worked with a producer who is, he loves the New York Times crossword puzzle on Sunday. He's the producer of, of a major NFL broadcast uh, on another network, but he will sit and he will spend his time and do the New York Times crossword because that's how he clears his mm -hmm. mind before jumping in and fully committing himself. I'll do certain things. I'll check email. I'll go to Facebook. I'll post pictures on Instagram. I'll do all kinds of things after we've rehearsed because we know we do have a few hours in the afternoon prior to warm ups and, and after lunch and stuff. That's kind of the lull of the day. And it's very, very easy. And I did this early on. It's very easy to fall into the what if trap, especially in my position. And I'm sure other technicians have, have felt the same way. You start to wonder, well, what if this fails? What am I going to do? What if that fails? What happens if this happens? How am I going to react to that? And you can go literally crazy <laughs> uh, wondering and, and pondering scenarios that may or may not ever happen in your entire career. You either can obsess over things or you can find a way to get your mind at ease and to think about something else for, for that period of time. And then, okay, time to go to work. Well, speaking of that, then, what, what is the, the most challenging uh, event you've ever been on and how did you get through it? The most challenging event. I, you know, the Super Bowls are never easy, but it's, it's not the part of the Super Bowl that I think most people would think that isn't easy. The hardest part of the Super Bowl for me personally, and I think uh, I, I share this experience with other 
technical directors who have, have been in that position. Because remember, there are only a handful of us. I think I, at last count, there were maybe 12 of us total alive today who have done the Super Bowl. Wow. Uh, at least in, in, that, in the lead chair. Uh, I've been the, the uh, replay technical director for my good friend Colby Bourgeois at Fox. In fact, I will be again uh, on this Super Bowl coming up in February. Or, But I think that I can speak for all of us when I say that the most difficult part of a Super Bowl is the pregame. Because the pregame, uh, you're you're in the chair and you're on the air sometimes an hour before mm-hmm. kickoff. You know, most networks have pregame coverage that starts at noon or 11 Eastern and goes right up to kickoff. We, we the game truck, the actual game coverage unit, we take over about an hour before kickoff. So, you know, we cover the things that happen on the field from uh, the Walter Payton Man of the, uh, of the Year Award through America the Beautiful, through the coin toss, uh, the national anthem. Uh, I will tell you that the Super Bowl in Minneapolis, uh, well, I guess it'll be three years ago now, that was probably the most nervous I've been going into mm. that pregame routine because we not only were using some virtual technology, uh, I had many pieces of my little uh, compartment of, of, of the show working for the starting lineups. The starting lineups were done, and I, I'm sure folks will remember this as I start to, to mention it, but it was a camera shooting the 50-yard line of the stadium. But at the 50-yard line, we had a virtual piece that had the actual starting lineups, the talking head lineups that I, that I run from one of my machines with a box on the side showing the teams walking to the field through the tunnel and through, through the backstage area. So I basically had both hands and both feet going <laughs> yeah. for 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 all of these for these two versions of lineups uh, in the pregame, and that was the most I won't call it stressful, but definitely the most uh, intense moment of 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 my career to date because it was it, everything hung in the balance on me. One wrong move by me, and this whole house of cards would have fallen down, and it it would have looked really bad. But it worked fine. It went great. Um, and, and everything uh, went off as it was supposed to. But, you know, once the coin toss happens, once uh, the national anthem is over and once they kick the ball, that's when everyone, at least in my truck and in, in the game truck, that's when we go, OK, yeah. now we're covering the game. Now it's about the game. And, and then you're doing what you do. I had an associate director of my first Super Bowl at NBC who, you know, we, we always, before we go on the air, everybody hits everybody else on our intercom system individually. And we say, hey, have a great game, have a great game, have a great game. Mm-hmm. This AD was adamant that we don't say have a great game until kickoff, because that's when we're covering the game. That's when we can sort of not relax, but we get into our game coverage uh, trance, as opposed to yeah. <laughs> this awkward and rehearsed and, and very... Uh, you know, moment by moment, uh, uh, scripted pregame trance. So that's that's the hardest thing to do is is get through that on a Super Bowl, knowing that you know there's so much at stake and so many eyeballs. But knock on wood, we've managed to to make it happen perfectly uh, every time. So hopefully that'll continue. Well, I just want to run through briefly some of the events that you've covered in your career: NFL on Fox. Super Bowl 42, 45, 47, and 51. Does that sound right? That sounds right, sure. (laughs) Uh, The BCS National Championship Games on Fox, the Fiesta Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl twice, Sunday Night Football, and where we met, NBC's live coverage of the Boston Marathon in 2016 and 17. That's right. And I don't know if you knew this, but I directed Universal Sports coverage of the Boston Marathon in 2013. Oh, great. Before Universal Sports and NBC Sports merged, which was interesting because you have to take a world feed and put your own coverage on top of that. So we might get into that a little bit later. Sure. You also directed NBC's coverage of the 2016 IAAF World Indoor Track and Field Championships. And you also direct Fox NASCAR. Right. What is the difference between all the different events that you've done as a technical director briefly and then as a director? Sure. Uh, It's two totally different hats. Uh, I am very fortunate in that I am one of, if not maybe the only active technical director, at least network technical director, who also has a DGA card. I'm also a member of the Directors Mm. Guild of America. And I was very fortunate to be able to join that 
group back in 2014 going into the 2015 NASCAR season. I was invited to be the director for the pre-race shows and the post-race shows. So my first event as a DGA network director was the Daytona 500 pre-race show, the pre-race leading up to the Daytona 500. And that was an incredible experience with, and it ran the gamut from, you know, a studio portion that was outside with uh, a jib and cameras and a live audience to a concert with Kid Rock. And then we moved inside the Hollywood Hotel. Then then you have driver introductions at a completely separate part of the track. It was uh, wonderfully chaotic, as I say. But it was a wonderful experience for me. Uh, that was a wonderful season to be a part of because I had slid over. I was, I was the technical director on that show for, you know, seven years prior to that. And to be able to be asked to step into a director chair for the pre-race and post-race shows was, was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, but the difference is in terms of, you know, the director is very much into the storyline, into the content of the show and trying to conceptualize the best visuals for the story that the producer wants to tell. The technical director is sort of the the person who executes uh, those things in real time, makes sure that we have the cameras in the right positions for the segment, for example. When we, when we did the Kid Rock show, you know, we had four cameras and three RF cameras that had to make moves over to this stage that was literally 50 yards away from everything else. So, you know, the technical director is the person who is technically watching and making sure that everything is where it needs to be and that the signal quality is what it's supposed to be. And the director is just there yelling at everybody. <laughs> no, that's, that's not really true. But, you know, in a musical segment, uh, for example, that that is a director show. So leading up to that, this was an interesting thing because Kid Rock at the time had just released a new album. And this was his first song off of the album. And, you know, a lot of times with a lot of artists, directors will have the opportunity to at least see it performed live once or, you know, maybe there'll be some footage that the artist can get to them of, of the song being performed because the director wants to know who's taking the guitar solo. Where is mm-hmm. where is the piano break? Where is, you know, what happens at this point in the song so that we can do what's called camera blocking for it to make sure that there is a camera positioned perfectly to cover that part of the song. This song was so new that he hadn't he didn't have any recorded footage of it. All I had was his album version of the song to go by. So we had one rehearsal that morning that basically I just sat and watched and and was able to figure out, you know, where everything was going to happen and then I had 3 minutes of a commercial break to get everybody positioned to cover the song, but to this day that is on my demo reel as a wonderful uh, uh example of my work as a, a director of music because it did come together very nicely. Uh, and it helps to have some of the best camera operators in the business, man. I'm I'm so fortunate, both as a director and as a technical director, to have worked with folks who have been doing this job for many, many, many years at the highest level. Yeah. And I, I say to anyone, a director is only as good as his or her camera operators. Or crew. And uh, the entire crew. Absolutely. The entire crew. You know, the audio folks, the the, the utilities, the, the, the graphics operators. You know, it's so nice to be surrounded and be supported by a group like that as a director. And of course, as a technical director, because, you know, there are some shows where I have to work a little bit harder as a technical director to get things done. Sunday Night Football and, and certainly Fox NASCAR are not two of those mm-hmm. shows. We have so many wonderful people at all levels Starting with our technical management, uh, on Sunday Night Football, we've got the legendary John Roche, who's been in this business a long, long time. Keith Kais out of Denver, been around a long, long time. They manage everything so that by the time it gets to me, it's right, or it's as right as it can be, and then we, we tweak it from there. Uh, same thing on NASCAR, uh, the great David Hill, technical manager David Hill, Pete Chalvaris. I mean, just wonderful folks who have been in the trenches with us for years who make sure it's all right before it gets to the truck, before it gets to the technical director. So it makes our job so much easier. They're two completely different careers in a lot of ways. And I've just been very, very fortunate to have have been able to experience both. Well, now with the IAAF and the Boston Marathon, it's a different type of putting an event together in terms of production because you're tapping off of the world feed production. So how would you describe the difference in doing something like that versus having complete control over something? You know, it's it's more difficult because uh, I'll, I'll take the Boston Marathon as the example. With the Boston Marathon, you know that this camera or this, we, we call them motos because every camera uh, that is used on the course 
is a, a being back from the back of a motorcycle. You have an operator basically hanging off the back of a motorcycle in front of uh, the lead groups of the elites for both the men, the women, and, and the chair events. And you know that this person is going to be with this pack. What you don't know is when they're going to accelerate or decelerate, depending on when the world feed is on them or not. And I have always been a bit of a gambler when it comes to something like that, because I want to show the pictures that my announcers are talking right. about. And, right. you know, if my announcers are talking about the women's group and I see that the helicopter is with the women's group, I'll take the helicopter separate from the world feed. I'll jump off the world feed. In fact, I think in 2016, I don't know that I spent any time on the actual world feeds production at all. <laughs> I was, I think we cut pretty much our entire show using exactly. all of their resources, but without the benefit of communication to their operators or, you know, without the operators knowing that we were, we were using them. I told their director early on that, that I'm going to stay with, I'll stay with his cut, but I will be cutting uh, alongside of him instead of sitting on his, on his feed. So he let his operators know that we're going to be, you know, back and forth. So if you need to make an adjustment, make it quick and make it smooth, which sometimes happens, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I always, if we can, I want to stay with our announcers because that's the key. You know, if you, I, I call it the say dog, see dog mentality. If if they're talking about a dog, you want to see a dog. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a gamble, but, you know, sometimes you may get a shaky camera. But again, on a race course, you're going to have some blips. You're going to have some areas where the coverage isn't as good in terms of the signal that gets back to you. Because remember, you're you're stretching across a 24.2-mile mm -hmm. course, you know, under trees and with weather and, and, and all of those things come into play. So it's definitely di more difficult. I was recently the coordinating director for the Alliance of American Football, which I think uh, some of your audience may have heard of or hopefully watched a little bit of. And that was a unique thing for us. We can talk about that a little bit more uh, yeah. if you like. But, but basically, the, the philosophy was there were four games every weekend, two on Saturday and two on Sunday. One of the Saturday games and one of the Sunday games were to be produced remotely from a facility in Scottsdale, Arizona. So as the coordinating director, I was back and forth to Scottsdale every week, and I was actually directing two football games a week from this remote facility. And that is in itself its own challenge mm -hmm. because you have some venues uh, that we use that were connected via fiber optic connectivity, which means that we could plug cameras in on one end and we can see them almost in real time in Scottsdale. Other venues required a satellite uplink for us to get those cameras. And the difference is the speed of light between a facility that's on fiber versus having to hit a satellite that's 250 nautical miles above the earth and then beam it back down with a delay of about three seconds. Mm -hmm. So between the time the action happened and the time it got to me was three seconds. And that was, and, and as you can imagine, it is it's like an, an hour. eternity. It is. It is an eternity. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, the first couple of weeks, we had to play those games very, very safe. It was a very safe-looking broadcast. We weren't taking a lot of chances with super close-ups. I'm a huge fan, especially as a football director, of those tight face shots as the quarterback is breaking the huddle. It's, it's very common now, but I've always been a fan of those shots of the linebacker looking and, and trying to make a read. You know, those are the shots that connect. Those are the shots that are emotional. But in a situation like that, with that sort of delay, it's, it's very, very difficult to be that precise in your directing. As time went on and as we got further into the season, I, I realized that I could have one of my core camera operators uh, in that low end zone position have his microphone basically open to me because our comms were in real time. We were over a real time landline for, for our comms. So they could, they could call me off of something if I wanted to take a shot and they knew it was no longer mm -hmm. there. They could call me off before. So we had to basically reinvent the way that we covered the sport, given the time difference and, and the shift uh, in the, I call it the space-time continuum. <laughs> we were never yeah. quite able to align, but it ended up working. And so much of what we were doing within the Alliance of American Football was working from the broadcast perspective, even from the gameplay perspective. You know, unfortunately, uh, it met its end because of financial reasons, and that's, that happens. And that's part of the risk that you take mm -hmm. with that kind of venture. But it's good to see some of the technology. A lot of the technology that we started there, we've we've actually moved to Sunday Night Football okay. uh, in, in terms of some of the Skycam positioning. You know, we were very Skycam-centric 
within the AAF. We were hoping that we would create some new angles. One of the things that we were doing was, was we call it side sky. So we would have uh, two sky cams, two completely different sky cam rigs at every one of these stadiums every week. And I'd bring one to the near side and basically do play-by-play coverage from a sideline view with thanks to Canon and uh, the folks there who created the lens for this very function of Skycam that wasn't as wide of an angle as you'd normally see from a Skycam lens. But we were able to move it and create some different angles that within the coming seasons would have had maybe some different technology underneath it that you would be able to see perhaps some player tracking in real time that, that we were developing. All of that was working. And, and all of the things that we were sort of planting seeds for, for, for future seasons was all working. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge compliment to the team that we had working on the AAF. And, and frankly, uh, some of the players uh, that were with us, uh, Young Hoku, who was with our Atlanta Legends team, is now kicking for the Atlanta Falcons, for example. So there are a lot of players who wouldn't have otherwise gotten any tape, as we yeah. say, or any, any footage to show an NFL team. They got it. Even in the eight weeks of, of the Alliance, they were able to get that and now have at least uh, a foot in the door with the NFL. So I think in the big picture, it was a huge success from the production side, from the broadcast side, and even from the gameplay side. We were able to put that alliance together and, and make it work for the weeks that it did. And unfortunately, it all comes down to finances, and, and that's where it didn't quite make it. But uh, uh, very happy for that opportunity. And as I tell people all the time, I would do it again tomorrow, even knowing what I know yeah. now. Uh, it was it was a wonderful thing. But it was it was good to be able to be the coordinating director to help put this thing together, working with Mark Teitelman, T-Man, who is uh, a wonderful producer out of California, known T-Man for many years, and, and he's such a wonderful ideas person that being able to bring his vision to life was was truly a highlight. Well, and it's interesting, too, because everybody intertwines with uh, everybody else. And so my next question here is, what makes a good TD and director? Because I know there's got to be a lot of synergy and almost mental telepathy to make sure that your vision as a director is reaching the TD and vice versa. You're exactly right. I, I, I joke all the time with my director, Drew Essikoff, and with, with Artie Kempner, and the joke is that I will do what you mean and not necessarily what you say. <laughs> because, again, you know, I go back to the trance. And, I, you know, having directed – look, I was a director way before I was ever a TD. Mm-hmm. I kind of happened uh, along this in, in a backwards kind of way, but it's been very helpful because I know that when I'm in the – and I'll go back to the trance – when I'm in the trance, I, it's, it's a lot of times it's just you're rattling off train of thought. And I may say camera one when I mean camera two. And, you know, a, a technical director who is in that synergy with you. And synergy is such a great word because it's true. You have to be in that same bubble, the same emotional bubble, the same conscious bubble, I guess. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe it. That's the best I can do. But <laughs> you have to be in sync. And when Drew or, or Artie may say, take camera one, but I know they mean two, you know, I'm taking camera two. And, you know, a lot of times it's acknowledged with a thumbs up or a glance or like, you know, yeah, thank you. You know what I Yeah, you know what I meant and not what I say. And that doesn't happen very often at all. I mean, you know, but right. again, they're managing. Well, but there are times where you get distracted by something that happens, you know, off the playing field from the camera that you're looking at. And I know this as a director, your brain starts going that way and you say one thing and your TD bails you out and you do look at him and say, oh, thank you. Right. <laughs> well, and, and again, look, we're all human. We're all human. And, and on these shows, especially the director is managing so many resources. So many resources, and you're constantly listening, and you're constantly trying to stay ahead of your analyst or uh, of your announcer, and you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to, you know, if if Chris Collinsworth starts talking about Aaron Rodgers, you want to see Aaron Rodgers right then, you know, and, and that's you're constantly in that mode again for that three and a half hour trance. But in terms of the number one quality, if I had to boil it down to one thing, because I've been asked this question many times, the one quality of a great director and a great technical director boils down to the same thing, and it's listening. You have to be able to listen to your announcers, to your producer. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time, I'm cursed with the ability to hear every conversation that's happening in the truck at the same time. And it is truly a neurosis, I'm sure. But <laughs> it, it has saved me many, many times. If I hear the producer or a, an associate producer setting something up or 
you know, if a scenario is coming into play that I know we've talked about and that will have this element, I'll recall the effect that goes with that element and have it ready to go. And so the best thing that a director could say to me as a technical director is take that wherein, you know, they don't have to explain it. Then, you know, set up your thing that we talked about with the thing and the thing and the thing. They don't have to do that sometimes. They just have to say, yes, take it, which drives the audio people absolutely crazy because they don't have a source for it. They, they want to hear. And they're in a separate <laughs> room altogether. And they're in a separate room altogether. They have my preview. So they know, you know, sort of what I'm setting up. And, and then a lot of times I'll hit them and say, hey, this is the, the whatever effect. If I have time, Otherwise, I'll take the effect and then hit them. But it drives them nuts. And I apologize to Wendell and to Fred and to uh, Kevin and all of my A1s for doing that to him. But, you know, there's no better thrill than that as a technical director, than, than it, being able to take it because you've recalled the right thing for the right scenario. And, and it just proves that you're in the, the right synergy with your entire production. Yeah. And that is as good as it gets, man. That is as good as it gets. Well, and, and I would say, too, that, being in your position, again, I've never really been in that position, but some of the better ones, TDs that I've worked with, have a great sense of anticipation on what you're going to do. And I, I don't think that's, I think that's just a, a gift. Sure, so sure. somebody in your position must have good anticipatory skills. Well, and, and I think it gets back to who, with whom you work. I think there are a lot of TDs in local markets, uh, especially those who do the, the visiting feeds of any professional team. I have the utmost respect for those TDs because they're able to work with a different production crew every night right. and are able to execute. But the expectation there, of course, is that they're going to, that the producer, the director, specifically the director, is going to tell them what's expected. And a lot of times that communication, again, in the trance, you know, back to all of us being human, a lot of times that communication isn't there or there's misunderstandings, or, you know, the, the director the night before meant this when they say that, but you mean that when you say this. And, and so I have the utmost respect for those, those women and men who are able to do that every single night with a new crew. I've been very fortunate to have worked with the same directors consistently over my entire career. Back to Rich Russo, who is now Fox's A NFL director, uh, he and I and, and the great Mike Burks were the team that did the BCS those years. We had a wonderful NFL package. We had an NFL package. I'm telling you, this was in 20, let's say 2008 or nine, where every single one of our NFL games, all 17 weeks, came down to the last two minutes of the fourth quarter. It was unbelievable. I mean, we had some of the best games, and we were able to basically showcase those games in a wonderful way. Mm. But I work with them consistently. And I think there's, you know, you, you do learn what your director and producer like. And it makes them comfortable. It makes you comfortable. It's a wonderful, wonderful, again, a synergy uh, amongst you that does turn telepathic or, or, as I say, telepathetic sometimes. That you, you, do, you do learn to read each other's minds, you know. And, and uh, I've talked with some, some Skycam operators. You know, the Skycam operation isn't just one person. Mm-hmm. Skycam, each of those rigs has two op. You have a, an actual pilot who's piloting the rig, and then you have a camera operator. And a lot of times those duos have worked together for years and years and years. And it's the same thing. It's, hey, do that thing. Yeah, I'm on it. You know, or hey, uh, give me a little more Z. Or give me... And, and yeah. it's that same sort of synergistic relationship that is, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm very fortunate to, to have been a part of that for so many years with, with so many great producers and directors. One of the things that I think people who watch a broadcast or maybe have been around a TV truck, they walk in and they hear all this yelling and screaming and that energy that goes on there. Can you explain what that dynamic is? Because I think a lot of people think it's just yelling and screaming. And, you know, when you make a mistake, your mistakes are noticed more than not. But how, how do you describe that dynamic for somebody who's never really understood being in a TV truck is like? It's, a, it's a lot like walking into when, when my mother was working with uh, the phone company. You know, you'd walk into the room where all the operators were. And every operator was having a different conversation with a different caller or a different user. And it's a lot like that dynamic. It sounds like noise at first. But then you realize that this person's talking to someone in Chippewa Falls, and this person's talking to someone in Atlanta, and this person's talking to someone who's hard of hearing. And, and it's, it's sort of that same dynamic. Every conversation that's being had in there is directed at 
an individual or a group of individuals. Uh, the director is talking mostly to the camera operators. The producer is talking to replay operators and graphics operators. The associate director behind me is talking to New York. So once you learn the voices and once you learn what key things to listen for, then it makes a whole lot more sense. It's a, like looking, it's a lot like looking at a monitor wall for the first time. It looks like a bunch of TVs. But then you realize, okay, all the cameras are here, and the cameras are aligned in a certain way that makes sense. The graphics are all here. Same thing. They're aligned in a way that makes sense. The replay machine. So once you break it all down, you know, you, you really can't focus on the whole, which is hard for folks who come in and they have no idea what's going on. Uh, again, to them, it just sounds like a, a, a lot of noise. But ultimately, and, and the more you do it, the more you start to learn to key in on the things that you need to listen to. And, and that's ultimately what allows us to survive in that otherwise chaotic environment, because it is. I, I've, you know, my family would come to watch me direct a newscast, and this was in market, you know, 110 in the early 1990s. And even as small as that was, they walked away shaking their heads going, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. Uh, I think most people, and I think most people listening to this podcast have no idea how many people and how many different positions there are. Uh, for a live broadcast. Yeah. And ultimately, the management of all of those positions comes down to the control room. It is literally the control room. We don't call it the out-of-control room. <laughs> we call it the control room. So every production person from the director and producer all the way through the associate directors and associate producers have a responsibility. And they have a group that they are managing. And, and I have a group that I'm managing or that I'm at least other department heads that I'm keying into for certain things that's happening underneath the surface aside from all the other noise. So mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it is a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It is controlled chaos, truly, but everyone knows their role and everyone knows the role that they play and what they need to listen for and watch for. So as we head into this upcoming Super Bowl in 2020, what would you like sports fans to know about what goes into that production that they might want to think about as they're watching the game? That everything that's happening on your television, from the pictures you see to the, the sounds you hear to the stories that are being told to the graphics that are on display, every bit of it is for you. We don't do this for ourselves or for our own, you know, gratification. We do it for the viewer. We do it to create the best viewing experience we possibly can for the viewer. I've been asked many times, well, who's your favorite team? Who do you pull for? What, what do you, what's, you know, are you guys secretly pulling for one team or another in the truck? And the answer is no, unequivocally no. We're pulling for a good game. So yeah, if one team is up by 14 points at halftime, we'll be pulling for the other team to score coming out of the, out of halftime because we want a good game. We would love a game that we'd love every game to come down to the last second, the last play of the game or overtime or or what have you. We want the experience for our viewers to be the absolute best it can be. And that's from the very top all the way down. And I think that, you know, understanding that there are humans who have families who travel all the weeks of, of a season, uh, you know, that miss holidays, that miss birthdays, that miss important life events with their families to be able to produce these events. And yeah, it's our job. And, and we, we, we accept that. And, and we certainly wouldn't do it if we didn't. But it's very important to me that folks know that there are people behind those lenses and behind the scenes who are working so very hard to make that the ultimate viewing experience and then a game experience for the viewer. And listen, a lot of times, sometimes we miss the mark and sometimes we don't react, you know, or, or, or something happens and, and, you know, a technical issue, whatever. And believe me when I tell you, no one takes that harder than we do. We, we analyze every bit of, of every game. Uh, I'll go back on Mondays and I'll scan through the Sunday night game and figure out, you know, where did, where, where did I miss the mark? Where, where did I make a mistake or where could I have been better? And just know that we all feel that way. And that's, that's CBS, Fox, NBC, you name it. We all, NFL Network, we all feel the same way. We want to produce and show you the best possible coverage of a great game. Very well said. All right. So final question here. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever gotten working in the broadcast industry? Wow. 
don't take it too seriously. That at the end of the day, it is just television. Uh, I, there was an article many years ago, and I can't remember if it was Forbes or one of the financial magazines had published. It was the top 20 most stressful careers in the United States. And I think you could probably guess the top three or four. It's, you know, surgeon, uh, air traffic controller in the New York uh, skyways. Mm -hmm. New York City cabbie was right up there. But among the top five or six was live television production. And I remember thinking it was the highest ranked that didn't directly involve human life. Mm. And that's at the end of the day, what someone told me, and that's what I remember. Hey, if you mess up, nobody's going to die. And that is to me the best advice I've ever gotten. It hasn't changed my passion or my desire to be absolutely perfect every time out. But at the end of the day, nobody's going to die if I make a wrong camera cut or if something happens that we don't expect. And to put your family first. You know, I have an 11 year old daughter. I actually, uh, uh, as we're taping this uh, the week before we're, we're, we're talking now, I changed my flight. We were going to L.A. for our Sunday game uh, on NBC, and my original flight was scheduled for Thursday night. Well, then her school came out with their schedule and, and had their holiday choral concert on that Thursday night. Well, guess what? There are more flights. So I changed my flight. I didn't miss her concert. She thought I would. She yeah. thought I was going to. In fact, I packed and I said goodbye and left for the airport. Little did she know I was just going to the flower shop to get her some flowers and then <laughs> trying to be right there on the front row for her. So, you know, it's little things like that. You, you, you have to prioritize your life, your health. You know, I've seen so many, even friends of mine, I'm 44 and I'm a relative baby in this industry uh, compared to some friends of ours that we both know. And some of them have deteriorating health. You know, they didn't always take care of themselves. You have to take care of yourself. You have to exercise. You have to try to eat right. And I say try because we do live a, a nomadic life on the road that, that sometimes so hard. the fast food is the only thing you have. But guess what? They have salads. They have healthier options. You know, don't be don't be dumb when it comes to what you put in your body and, and try to take care of yourself and your family first. And that's what I would share with anybody. You know, prioritize your life. Know what's important and, and you'll live your life that way. Well, and we work in a, a fun industry. It's it's uh, it's supposed to be about fun, and it's sports, and it's TV, and you know it is stressful, but it it ultimately is is something that I I think many of us couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I think the sisterhood and brotherhood is is unlike anything I've ever seen, uh, at least among so many people. I I'll talk with folks who work on small productions locally. And folks who also work on Super Bowls, and we'll all go to lunch together, and we'll bounce ideas off of each other. I don't know of any other industry, save maybe the airline pilot industry, because they are they are a very tight knit group as well. But uh, in my experience, our industry is is more tightly knit with as many brothers and sisters. If somebody has a medical issue, or if there is a fundraiser for somebody's family, we all contribute. I, I may not know the person, but I'm going to contribute. And and I think that goes across the industry. I think we have so many people in such uh, unique roles that we all recognize how special it is that we get to do this. Yeah. You're right. This is fun. This is, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. I worked in an office, you know, when I was working in local television, for the most part as a manager, I worked in an office and I wore a tie and I worked with sales personnel and clients and, and that was fine, <laughs> but <laughs> that was a job. That was a, that part of my career was a job, and I vowed to never do that to myself again because I didn't have fun. I didn't have fun doing that. I didn't get to be creative, and I didn't get to suggest to Fred Gadelli that we maybe try this effect for this execution and have him buy it. Oh, my gosh. It's the greatest thing in the world to be able to, to pitch something to your producer who is an absolute legend and have him like it and go with it. And yeah. there's just nothing like that, you know, and, and I just uh, I'm so very thankful, and I'm so happy when others approach me and ask for advice because I'm more than willing to help because listen, I wouldn't be where I am. And I, I certainly think uh, you can probably imagine from your perspective, we wouldn't be where we are without the help of others along the way. That's right. You don't just magically wake up one day and, and do Sunday night football. You have help and you develop a name and, and, you know, don't ever, ever at any level burn a bridge. Don't because, you know, I have so many examples of those who who have, who it came back to bite them later, and you just don't want to be that person. You know, there's no reason. Again, life is too short, and, and this is too tight of a community from, from top to bottom that, you know, you ever burn a bridge. Don't ever do that. Don't, you know, always try to do things the right way if you can. That's my speech to, to whomever is listening. 
Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on with me and talking about this because, you know, I know what it's like being on that front bench, as you mentioned, and but you've been at it at a, at a much higher level than I have and probably ever will be. But it's all the same. It's just the, the level of eyeballs and the attention to detail is, is what makes it. And so just having that time to, to share your experience with me and, and hopefully shed some light for sports fans on how things happen uh, is greatly appreciated. So thank you very much. Oh, it's absolutely my, my pleasure. And I appreciate your passion. You know, we've worked together enough that I've experienced it. Uh, and, you know, and, and that's the key. We all have a passion for doing this and we want it to be done the right way. And, and thank you to, to your audience for watching uh, and, and of course, listening to this, but for watching these events and for appreciating them for what they are. Because again, most people just turn on the TV and it's magically there, but there's so much that goes behind it. And I just, I appreciate the opportunity to, to help try to explain it. All right, that was my friend John Howard, and even though I have a pretty good idea of what my colleagues do, I always appreciate their stories and perspectives on their experiences. John Howard is a great guy with a lot of talent, and he truly cares about the people he works with. So the next time you watch sports on TV, it's my hope that you have a better understanding of what it is that the technical director does. On the next episode of Sports in the Making, I visit with Chris Farrow, former coordinating producer of college basketball, We talk about how he was able to manage the hundreds of games each year for ESPN's family of networks. We'll also talk about his love for concerts and what he looks for when hiring game announcers. That's on the next episode of Sports in the Making. If you like this episode, be sure to like it and share it on your social media channels. And feel free to review this episode. Also be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on any more episodes. If there's something that you would like to know more of in sports, Drop me a line on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. You can also visit sportsinthemaking.com to catch up on previous episodes. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making.